have you ever um, followed somebody that never let you down, ever? If you have, just wait a little bit longer. Uh, people let us down, leaders let us down, but there also emerge leaders uh, in our life, in our world, in church, in politics, in our families, or anywhere else, who tell us and promise us that they won't let us down. And then they go about shaping and forming our opinions into the ones that match whatever their goals are. And so thus, magically, they end up not letting us down because they've shaped and formed our thoughts and our minds and our hearts to whatever they want. And amongst many things, this is one of the things that this passage is about that we're going to be exploring this morning. What does it mean to trust leaders? What does it mean to not resign ourselves to the golden calves of life, but with faith and courage to be able to go after what's, what new things might be happening and occurring and being willing to follow uh, people who are willing to live in that tension? Because that's what Moses is doing here. So before we get into that, I just want to pray for our time in this passage. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the uh, weather this morning. Thank you for your people here and scattered across uh, the world. And we pray that you would speak in and through this word this morning, that we would leave encouraged, that we would leave comforted, and that we would leave challenged. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. So, um, let's take a look at this leadership that exists here in this passage and the contrast between those types of leadership that I just talked about. Leaders that let you down and are human, and then the leaders that sort of try to respond or shape things to where they convince you that they haven't let you down. One leads to the future, one points back to the past. So let's start together here in verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So um, Moses has led the people here, the Israelites, out of Egyptian slavery and captivity under an oppressive rule. And now these thousands and thousands of people are wandering in the wilderness. And the only civilization that they know experientially, that they've experienced in their lifetimes, is the Egyptian rule over them, where they were slaves, where they were less than human, where they did not have the dignity and worth of their captives. And Moses has gone up uh, to the mountain, this mountain Sinai, and he's come back with divine law and rule for their lives, something that sets up an ethic that is new to them. And then he makes a second journey up the mountain 
And, and what he's getting there, we find as, as we read through the scriptures, is he's getting plans for something called a tabernacle, a place for God to dwell among them as they travel. And so he's up there for a long time. We're told 40 days he's up there on the mountain. And in that time, the people get restless and they get anxious and they want to have some security. I mean, who wouldn't in that situation, right? You get led out into the middle of nowhere and then your leader just like disappears on a mountain for 40 days, a whole month, more than a month of time. And you're thinking like, okay, we don't know what happened to this guy and we need some security, we need some leadership, we need something to focus on that we believe, we can believe and manifest in our minds that can get us through this hard time. And so they go for something familiar. A, a familiar idea uh, is what they go for in this golden calf here. So obviously Moses isn't gone, we know that, but I want you to just imagine what it would feel like to be those people, to feel like maybe the leader abandoned you or maybe he died on the mountain. Maybe he had a good plan, but he couldn't see it through. And they say, well, we need something to comfort us. We need something to guide us. And what they knew from Egypt is that they needed some gods. They needed some people who could be responsible for the weather, for their food, and for those types of things that they could trust in and have faith and not be so scared that they were paralyzed and couldn't do anything. So, you know, few, few leaders reward us with being patient, but even fewer expect patience out of us. Uh, like I said before, you know, we're contrasting different types of leadership and, you know, Moses may have not been the best leader in preparing the people for his absence, but his intentions are really good. He, he wants to bring something new to the people that he's experiencing from God that will allow them to have God's presence with them on a regular basis. A God of compassion, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God that is present. But it takes a long time. And there's, there's plenty of leaders who are just willing to simply like lie. They're, they're, they're willing to tell you, you don't have to wait Everything that you need, every impulse that you have, you can be satisfied in that by being attracted to this idea, angry at these people, or to have this stuff right in front of you, these material things, be the thing that you focus all of your anxiety and all of your thoughts and all of your trust in. Sometimes, though, if we live with presence, if we live with faith, what we get to see is that circumstances are sometimes being worked out for us in our behalf by God, and that if we are able to believe that God is bigger than our impulses, and that God is wiser than our anxieties that we have, and God is, is more present than the material problems in front of us, then we might get to experience something greater than the past. So 
Aaron answers the people in verse 2, and he says, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So Aaron is the leader de facto because Moses isn't there. And um, the people are saying, hey, we need, we need a God. That's what we're used to. We're used to following gods, and we need to follow a God. And um, Aaron's like, okay, let me, let me figure something out here. Because Aaron obviously has a hard time living in the tension. He, he knows better than anybody what's going on on the mountain. He's like Moses' right-hand man. But he's scared of the anxiety of the people. He's scared of what they don't have at the moment. And so he thinks fast. Okay, uh, give me all your earrings. Give me all this gold. And the irony about this, right? The people are saying, we want, we want gods. We need gods. And we need something to see. Like Moses is gone, so give us something else to look at. And the jewelry that the people were wearing came from Egypt. So they're literally recycling the materiality of the oppressive culture they just got out of and calling it God. It's incredibly ironic because those gods, those images that included calves and things like that, as well as some of the other uh, surrounding people groups, would have also been a symbol of their oppression. And yet they say, we need this because we're scared and we're anxious. And Aaron, very different type of leadership than Moses, he was happy to do that for them because he didn't want to have to live in this spot, in this tension of waiting, of waiting to see what was going to emerge, something new that could emerge because it's always harder to wait for the future than to cling to the past. And the difference between a leader who is worth following is one who is willing and, and knows that God is in the things that have yet to occur, that is not resigned to all of the things that have already happened, that tells you you need to focus on this and what you've lost or what you're trying to hold on to, but points to what could be in the future that's bigger than your current imagination allows for. But Aaron was happy to confuse the gift with the giver, with the material for the divine. So he said, yeah, let's, let's make these things one and the same. Material comfort, easier to control right now. Let's make that synonymous with God. Now, God is a source of comfort for us. Absolutely. And the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit, a name for the Holy Spirit, is comforter. But I am pretty convinced, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty convinced that God does not seek to comfort us by blinding us to the realities that we are in. Because sure enough, that's what this golden calf has done. This story is so important to the Jewish people. It's one of the, the center points of understanding the Jewish faith and consequently or uh, laterally the Christian faith as well because of this idea of comfort in something that cannot truly provide comfort, that takes a denial of reality and what is real in order to suspend our understanding of the things happening around us to bring us comfort. And so Aaron, uh, he, subside, he, he acquiesces to the tyranny of the majority. I've heard somebody say that before, the tyranny of majority. He got just kind of outvoted and he just, he just went with it. I remember 
Um, I remember going through a, a really difficult circumstance of many years ago and, and being visibly shaken and upset. And a, a, an acquaintance said to me, hey, you know, I'm never going to let you down. Like, I'm, I'll always be there for you. I know that you were let down by this person, but I'm never going to do that for you. I'm never going to do that to you. And it wasn't really a comfort to me because I was not naive enough to believe that that person could provide what they wanted to say they could provide. I understood their intent was to bring me comfort, but I would have to suspend what I already saw and knew about reality in order to receive that comfort. And God is not one that asks us to suspend the belief of reality in order to bring us comfort. But you know, the thing about Aaron, he didn't lead in this moment. He just did what the people wanted. But none of the people led either. Nobody else stood up and said, hey, this is a bad idea to make a golden calf. Like maybe we should wait a little bit longer for Moses. I think he said he was going to be up there for a while. Aaron, do you know how long he said he was going to be up there? Do you, do you, didn't he already come back with a bunch of stuff we'd never thought of and seen in our lives before? Nobody. And so the result was the tyranny of the majority. So in verse 4, it says he, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So when we have these golden calves in our lives, we abandon the possibility of something divine happening, something outside of our current understanding for the instant gratification of the familiar. It is so hard. It is so hard for me to not just want to, when I feel some anxiety, to pull out my phone. Or when I'm reading things, not to just find something that affirms what I already believe and want to hear. It's very hard to do that. Instant gratification is the enemy I believe, and I believe one of the things this passage is showing us from being able to see what God might have for us. Good things take time. Good things take patience. Good things take faith in each other and in God. So, um, speaking about this idea, you know, this, this idea of, of the tyranny of the majority and, and, and that kind of thing with instant gratification because the people knew that this golden calf wasn't wasn't the god that brought them out of egypt they knew that they just needed something they needed something to calm them down you know uh the idea the definition of tyranny is just like a cruel and oppressive government or rule that's the definition and that's what the people had just come out of and so it would make sense that that's how they operate right and so they might think, oh, well, we're just trying to figure out what's best for us. We're in this desert. We're not being influenced by anything. But they were heavily being influenced by where they came from, just like we are, just like each one of us is. And uh, I want to read you this quote about the idea of tyranny by this man named Timothy Snyder, a historian. He says, you submit to tyranny when you renounce the difference between what you want to hear and what is actually the case. This renunciation of truth can feel natural and pleasant, but the result is your demise 
as an individual. It can feel natural and pleasant to renounce the difference between what you want to hear and what is actually the case. That's what the Israelites were doing. That's what many of us are doing in different areas of our lives and in our country right now. So why do we do it? Why, why pretend? Why say that the golden calf is God, either explicitly in our words or in our actions? Well, because we're scared. People, Israel pe the people of Israel were out in the desert. They were scared to die. They didn't have a home. They were without a leader at the moment. They wanted to have some control, feel control over their fate. And what better way to do that than to be able to manipulate an object and call it God? So the golden calf is only a representation of what they thought their present and their future could be. To worship an idol is only to worship your own thoughts, to escape your own fears. Here's the problem, though. Guess what I'm about to talk about? Feelings. <laughs> Some of us have been taught early on you have to avoid your feelings. Your feelings of fear and hurt and loneliness. And if you avoid your feelings, then you can avoid feeling uncertain. And so what we do unknowingly is we find leaders, people to follow that are in the same denial of their feelings that we are. And so it becomes easy, it becomes pleasant to follow people who can give us that instant gratification so that we don't have to sit with our fear. But fear is so valuable and important because only with fear can faith grow. Only with fear can faith grow. It's too limiting of a perspective not to allow these things into our hearts, into our lives. It's living in a fantasy instead of a reality. So here's the thing. Uh, symbols, symbols matter. So these things that we focus on, they matter. They mean something. When we ascribe worth and value to a symbol, the golden calves of our lives, whatever those things may be, those things that are propped up. So if we talk about like uh, some of the things in, uh, in, in political discourse, like the economy or something, like if we ascribe a godlike value to that thing, that will trickle down into the ways that we treat people within that society, within that culture. Whatever is elevated will decide how we treat our fellow human beings. And so symbols matter and they're important. If the gauge of how a country is doing is on a chart like this, with how much money is going in and out of certain people's pockets, then we will begin to treat, or we will continue to treat our fellow man based on those numbers and, our cal and those calculations and how they fit into those things. I'm so glad, personally, I'm so glad that God is more than what I can imagine is more than what I could create with my own hands or my own words. And that means that God is bigger than any one symbol that somebody can tell me is as important or nearly as important as who God is. You know, um, 
I was talking with a friend recently and we were talking about somebody who um, was afraid to go to the doctor because they thought they, if they went, they might be diagnosed with cancer. And um, they, had, they had cancer, but they didn't want to go to the doctor because maybe it wouldn't be completely real if the doctor didn't diagnose it. And my friend was saying, I can't believe uh, that people would do that, live in that level of denial. And I said, I can. I've, I've done it about lots of things uh, in my life where it was more painful for me to admit that there was something that was hurting me and other people around me than to hear the honest truth from another person or from God in some stillness and silence or through the words speaking to me. And so I recognize that this is something, the golden calf of denial presents itself in all of our lives. And in this scenario, in this picture, I want you to imagine the golden calf as the picture of denial and the difficult to grasp, sometimes elusive presence of God is reality is reality. I, I think that's actually, you know, Moses at one point in Exodus, he asks God, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, I, I can't show you my glory. I can show you kind of like, like sort of like the trail or the wake of where my glory or presence was. And to me, this makes so much sense because to see God would be to see reality as clear and naked as it could possibly be seen. And that would be very difficult for us to grasp, for us to imagine both the awesomeness and the terribleness of it synonymously. And that's the situation that the people here are in as they, um, they uh, succumb to the impulse of needing security, of needing to call something a God that's an object. I didn't think I'd be preaching up here all by myself this morning. I thought that I was done doing that on Sunday morning. Somebody give me uh, something, a head nod, an amen, a, a clap, a snap, whatever y'all like to do. <laughs> so we, we, either, we either are going to pursue divine destinies for us, our people, our country, or we're going to get immersed in just the immediate distractions in front of us. And we're going to let the leaders who do that convince us that's what our energy and our time should be focused on. And y'all know, I don't even have to say it. I don't even have to say anything about social media or those things or the constant arguing and, and fighting over there over things um, going on right now that eat up all of our time and our energy. So in verse five and six, it says the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship off offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Do you ever find it really hard not to distract yourself with poor coping mechanisms, with offering your joy, your um, time and energy into things that you know? that you know don't produce goodness in your life. They're just a distraction. If anybody can say they've made it through 2020 without doing this, then you should be up here teaching because 
That is an incredibly difficult thing to do right now, especially. The Lord said in verse 7 to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you've brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. So, again, this is, this is ironic and would have been to the original readers that Moses is up here getting new information, new instructions. He's co-collaborating with God on a brand new society. And in a very short amount of time, the people regress. They say, no, what happened before was better and we're so in denial of it, we're going to get up and celebrate it and pretend like it's something new and good for us. That's a lot of denial. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like, well, when we're free, you know, we're free to go do this and we're just going to like do what we want to do. But what they did was what their other leaders, their previous leaders, their oppressors taught them to do. That's what they did when they were left to themselves. It's kind of like... Uh, when you get your driver's license when you're 16 and you're like, I'm free. I'm going to go wherever I want to go and do whatever I want to do. When I was 16 and I thought that, I drove to the mall and like I drove home. <laughs> like I, call, I called, you know, over to my friend's house and I drove over to, to his house and then I drove home, right? <laughs> like I had all this freedom, but I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> I didn't even know how to get around. Now kids have you know, their phones, and they could go anywhere they want to go. They could just type it in. But back in my day, we had to drive uphill in the snow both ways. With, and all we had was MapQuest. You could print it out if you had a personal computer and a printer with these little things you had to rip off on the sides of each page. <laughs> um, you know, another story like that is that a couple of years ago, I had these work trips back to back, and so I, I, I took my family up to my mother-in-law's house, and I came home, and in between these two work trips, I was gonna have three and a half or four, about three and a half days at home by myself. And I was like, oh man, freedom. I'm gonna get all these things done. I'm gonna watch all the like, you know, movies that my wife hates, that you know, has lots of explosions and punching and stuff. And, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all these things in my neighborhood and, and meet people, and I'm going to do these projects and stuff. And what I did most of the time was try to find my keys and remember to eat during meal times and pick up after myself. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. I can't even, I can't even get anything else done because, I'm, oh, my laundry is still there. I still have to do my laundry. And those dishes that Becky would have reminded me about are still in that exact same spot. I didn't have anything productive to do with all of that freedom that I had. I needed a leader. I needed the leader in my household, and I was not the leader. So, so, uh, the, so the people they get up in revelry and they do this thing, right? And uh, so, in the in the last few verses here, uh, verse nine, it says, "I have seen these people." The Lord said to Moses, "And they are stiff-necked people." Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. 
But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. I, you know, when I read this part, it seems to me this is really, this part of the conversation is really for us to see as viewers, to, to help us gain a bigger perspective. That's the rest of my scriptures on there. Um, to help us gain a larger perspective of what's going on here. You know, because there's sometimes when we have a sense that we're some kind of chosen people or we're special, we feel like the rules don't really apply to us sometimes. And in this conversation between God and Moses, it seems clear that it is not, it, the people are not invincible because they are God's chosen people. They can't just treat people and do whatever they want, have their own value systems, and just be able to keep on going and uh, mess up everything uh, without consequence. But it also shows who is the author of the grace and the mercy among the people. It's not the people, it's God. It, it, it's not that the people here are so good that God says, oh, well, that, I know they're gonna do, I know they're gonna do better, but it's God's graciousness that is highlighted in this passage. It's almost, it almost seems like, you know, he says, he says kind of like, leave, leave me alone, Moses. I'm, I'm gonna kill him, I already decided, leave me alone. And then he waits for Moses to say something because he knows Moses is like not going to want everybody to be killed. So it's almost like he's trying to, trying to show us, the writer's trying to show us this kind of dialogue and help us to understand that it's not that these people are so chosen and so special that they get to just run amok in the world, but it's God's graciousness to them. It's God's graciousness to them that allows them to continue that allows them to learn and grow and change, even though those, those decisions they make have incredibly bad consequences. It was the grace of God here. It reminds me of these words of Jesus in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, it's, it's clear that, that, you know, Jesus understands that we need, we need leadership, that we need help, that we tend to turn God into small material things and we're all too quick to worship those things to take what we've already got, what we've already learned, what we've already been told, you have to hold on to these things and to make those things synonymous with God. Um, 
you know, some, some folks, we, we've grown up with church being something separate, at least in, in, in word and in phrase from politics. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that's true at all. I don't think there's any rational argument to say that that's true. And, you know, one of the issues that we're dealing with, uh, one of the many issues that we're dealing with right now is around climate change and where we get our energy sources from. And one view views the past as what we just need to hold on to forever. Fossil fuels and things like that. That if we were to look for, for, towards the future and to create new ways of thinking about things and doing things energy-wise, that people would lose jobs or something like that. And yes, they would. They would lose jobs and then there would be new jobs because there would be new jobs with new energy sources and things like that. And this is normal in human history. When the light bulb was being invented uh, by Thomas Edison and others, there was a huge backlash. And there were lots of people who had deep, deep pockets uh, in terms of using different oils and uh, like whale blubber and things like that with candles, like candlelight. They were saying, electricity is too dangerous. Like, people can die from electricity, and they surely could. And at the same time, everybody was inhaling gallons of smoke indoors from candles at night. And so there is this uh, perspective that the past is something we have to latch on to and hold on to and make as few changes as possible because the future is uncertain, and what we know is the past. But when we look closely at the scriptures, we see a God that is always moving into the future. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Not just the beginning, not just the Alpha, but the beginning and the end. And so if we don't have the faith to believe that God can see us into a new future, because that's exactly what the problem was that the Israelites were facing in that moment. It was, are we going to be satisfied with the objects of the past, the golden calves of our resignation to the things that already are, that our imaginations can fully grasp, or can we have the faith and the trust to trust that God could dwell among us and speak to us in this moving, breathing tabernacle that would take time to understand and to build and to interact with. And so no doubt, no time is different. As Amanda was talking about from Ecclesiastes, we are faced with the same issues. We cannot ever begin to think that we can be born and live and die without having to challenge the status quos of the day and call ourselves at the same time the people of God. Hello, somebody. If we are not able to imagine and project in the future that God is bigger than our immediate impulses, than, than, than our anxieties about what's, what's next, uh, it, it, if, if God is not bigger than those things, then I dare say, friends, we might have a golden calf in our midst rather than the living, breathing God. This is not a message for some people. This is a message for all people. Just like it was God's grace that saved those folks. It wasn't their special identities. 
It wasn't where, what their grandma told them about them. It wasn't the color of their skin. It wasn't their country of origin that made them special. It was their ability to wrestle and figure things out in the midst of God's grace and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that, um, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, that you are, are gracious to us, and that you are a large and expansive God, that you are a God who wants to bring us comfort, but that comfort, it does not need to come at the expense of believing and seeing the realities and the challenges in front of us. And so would you hold us? And would you carry us? And would you infuse us with courage to not just live with the things that are most comfortable to us and call those things good, but to seek what it is that is good for, for us, for our fellow man, for our neighbor, and that we would ask you for the courage to bring those things to fruition. Would you give us faith? Would you give us courage? Would you give us love? Would you give us hope and a new tomorrow? In Jesus' name, amen.